All right. I have been waiting on this series since April. So you're going to have to forgive me if I get way too excited at times because this is some really cool stuff. And, and even if it's not cool to you, it's still going to feel cool to me because I'm telling you, it's changing the way that I read a lot of Scripture and not just the Old Testament. But this is a, the beginning of the series, Lessons from the Desert. And I had to spell check it a hundred times because desert and dessert are way too close. And whoever decided that back in eons ago and in, in naming things and making language, I, I really wish I had a time machine just to go slap them and, and just call dessert nummy num nums. And then we're never going to misspell it with desert. You know, you don't want to eat the desert. And, and you don't want dessert in the desert most of the time because it would probably kill you. So, images of the desert, lessons from the desert. The, I, I wondered sometimes why God took the children of Israel through the desert. Why did they have to, and, and we're jumping ahead a little bit in the narrative where they're going to wander the desert for 40 years. And, and I hope a lot of you are up to speed on how that story came about. If, if you're not, I'll tell you, they came right up to the promised land and they sent 12 spies into the land and only two of them came back with enough faith saying they could conquer it. And just like today, a lot of people went with the majority rather than what they knew was right in their heart. And God said, you're not ready to take this land. You can't be who I've called you to be because you don't have enough faith that I'm going to help you. So we're going to take you out in the desert and I'm going to show you who I am. I'm going to teach you about me and about our relationship and our partnership together so that the next time we come to the promised land, you will obey me and you will see my hand at work in ways the world has never seen. Now, with that knowledge in mind, what if we as the church took that approach where we saw the world as something that we could, in Jesus' name, have victory over? The, the people that frustrate us the most, what if we saw them as a person who was potentially going to do the most for the kingdom rather than God can never reach them? They're so far gone, God can never reach them. And, and I'm telling you that I have to fight that mentality as a pastor sometimes because we're overwhelmed with the evil in our world. But maybe we need to go back to the desert, and I'll tell you why. The place is demanding, and it builds character. You don't build character being comfortable. You have to get uncomfortable in order to build some character. The desert is destructive. Sign me up for that. You know, I want some destruction in my life. Uh, it builds interdependence. You don't want to go through the desert on your own because it's isolating. The deserts 
not a place a lot of people go for vacation. Anyone just saying, hey, sign me up. I want to go walk across the desert. And the first thing you got to do is start getting the image of big sand dunes out of your mind. That is actually a very small portion of desert in the world. The majority of desert is classified that because the amount of rainfall it gets. Most of them are rocky with a few plants here and there. And you can travel across it. It's just very difficult. So anyone want to go on that backpack trip with Pastor? Nobody signing up to go to the Negev with me? Oh, yeah. Hey, I'll take you. Let's go. You, me, backpacks in the Negev. It'll be fun. Well, sort of. It builds community. Because like I said, going through the desert alone is not easy. Okay, there's an old African proverb that's from the edge of the savanna that is very near the desert. It says, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And because it's the desert, and I want you to understand the desert of the Sinai, the Negev Desert, where God is going to take the children of Israel, it builds nations. And I I want us to, to think about, as we go through this series, think about how our nation was built. A lot of these fit, even though we don't think of the United States as a desert. But it was demanding built character. It was destructive. It built interdependence. Why did we get rid of England? We didn't need them. It's isolating. I mean, you could go through eras of history. Scott's rolling them through his head right now. He's like, man, that is wild. It builds community and it builds nations. Part one of this lessons from the desert is simply entitled Shepherd. And it's going to be one of the most familiar passages of Scripture we use. And I'm hoping that after today, you never read this psalm the same way. The 23rd Psalm, and I know it's really small up there, but most of you have it committed to memory anyway. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Okay? Think about it for a minute. Just be real with yourself. What image comes to mind when you hear, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. I'll tell you, this is the picture that comes to mind for me. This lush green meadow and the, the shepherd standing under a shade tree holding a lamb with, with just a staff. Okay, the, this is not the picture of what David just described because he's holding a lamb instead of a rod and a staff. Okay, so that destroys part of this image for me. The other is where did David tend sheep? In the wilderness. 
Okay, for years and years and years, I've had this lovely blush green pasture up there. And instead, this is the image of where, Je where Jesus will quote about David tending sheep. Now, cattle people, we gotta, I got to help my cattle people out. Because cattle people, you can't put cows on that. You can't put one cow on that, let alone herds like we do. We're not sheep people, so we struggle a little bit. Sheep are not, they have to just graze and graze and graze and graze. Sheep are built uniquely to where they can graze on what we would consider just enough. And the green pastures of the Negev are when the rains come through. And yes, it does rain in the desert. It's just little tufts of grass that come up. I want you to understand they have the same problem we do. Weeds come up as well, and that's why you'll often see sheep and goats grazing together because the sheep want the good grass and the goats will eat the weeds. And there's a whole different sermon in there. We won't go there today, but uh, if you ever want to talk to somebody about hypocrites in the church, let them know that sheep and goats graze together. That's the freebie. But God is revealing through David that he is the God of just enough. He's not going to overwhelm you. If you put sheep out in that first pasture we looked at, you're not going to get what they needed the sheep to be in the Middle East. They needed them to be what sheep were intended to be. They're, you can eat some of them for meat, but what you really want off of them is their wool so that you have a material to clothe yourself with. Otherwise, you're going to have to go back to Egypt and buy cotton. God is taking them out and showing them, I've given you everything that you need in an economic standpoint, which that's hard for us too because we're, we're in a society that, when will I be happy? Just give me a dollar more and let me find out. I'm with you. Give me the lottery winnings and watch me spend it. You know, I'll do some great things for the kingdom with that money. But Jesus talked about this too when he was tempted by the devil. The man does not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Some translations say the very word of God. But I, I want you to understand that you're called to live by every word that God speaks. And, and I hope as we've gone through this study, you start to see that there's value in parts of the Old Testament that you didn't see because God was revealing himself, but he was also revealing who Jesus was going to be, who Jesus is. The other thing that's going to come up if you keep reading through the Old Testament, God is going to reveal the power of the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit can transform a person's life into. In the Old Testament, the Spirit of God rushes upon them. In the New Testament, the Spirit of God indwells them. And it's a beautiful thing. But man doesn't live by bread alone. The sheep out there in the desert look like they're going to starve to death. If you go back and look at that picture, how can anything live off that? It's just enough. He leads me beside the still waters. One of the other things that popped out and 
has crossed my mind and just finally came back, sometimes thoughts run away from me, is how much traveling goes on in the desert. Okay? They, the scripture defines they wandered the wilderness. It meant they kept migrating. They kept traveling. Okay? How much in the psalm do we see that we're moving? He makes me lie down in green pastures. That's an active. He leads me beside the still waters. It's moving once again. Why does still waters matter and, and how are you going to put this in the desert? Okay, this is the image we all think of. And yes, this is a, a pool of water in the desert. We like to think, well, he just moved the sheep from oasis to oasis. No, there's not that many oasises in the Negev. There's not that many cisterns that you can find in the Negev. Are they helpful and useful? Yes, but that's not the still waters that he's speaking of. But before we get to that, I gotta ask you a question. What's the number one way that people die in the Negev desert? What's the number one way you die in the desert? Go ahead, say it loud. No water, you die of thirst? Show of hands real quick. How many of you think you die of thirst? Because I'm about to blow your mind. The number one way that people die in the Negev Desert is drowning at the bottom of a wadi. More people die drowning than they do of thirst. Blew my mind when I read that statistic. This is after the waters have receded a long way at the bottom of a wadi. And if you don't know what a wadi is, it's a steep canyon in the desert. And, and down in this very sandy, rocky area, when it rains, all the water just funnels down to it. So flash flooding on steroids. And it rushes through there. And if you get caught in the bottom of a wadi in a rainstorm, you're done. You're not gonna swim out of it. You are going to get rolled across the bottom of the wadi and pretty well crushed by the water. So you get to see that picture. You get to see there is water. In the very bottom right-hand corner, you see what gets left over when that water is gone. Little pools of still water all throughout the wadi. After the rains, the shepherds will take the sheep down into the wadi to get them a drink because all these pools are gathered up and it's fresh and it's refreshing in the desert. Changes the way I looked at still water. He leads me beside the still water. But how often is that true in our life? The biggest times of spiritual refreshing come after the most turbulent events. The, the moments that absolutely break our hearts, we often find God to be true to His Word because in, in Psalm, David said that the Lord draws close to the brokenhearted. So in, in those moments, after those heartbreaking moments of life, we often find a closeness with God we didn't know we had. But Jesus also referenced this. 
And, and I didn't realize it till I looked at it when he talked about the, the wise and the foolish builder. Because I, as I mentioned, what's the bottom of the wadi made of? It's mostly sand. And, and sand is not a terrible material for leveling up and getting prepared to build a structure. And honestly, you could build a structure on sand and be okay if it's not going to be in a place where massive amounts of water come running through. The top of the wadi is rock. The wise man builds his house upon the rock. So when the storms beat down on it, it stands. The foolish man builds his house on the sand. And when the waters come, it sweeps away his house. Just so different. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Man, I, I used to think of this as a little trail going through that big green meadow. I was wrong. This is actually a Bedouin term. It's not unique to the Hebrew shepherds. This is a term from just Bedouin shepherds that are still in that country today. And if you look really closely on this picture, you see these little lines going across that hill. Those are the paths of righteousness. Now the paths of righteousness are where the sheep have traveled across that hill as long as time has allowed them to. The other great thing about those paths is they all catch water as it comes down from the top of the, the, top of the hill. And anywhere where water starts to pool up, what's gonna, do, what's gonna happen in the desert? Stuff's gonna grow. And that path of righteousness, that path that has been walked over and over and over, there is still nourishment to be found. There's still, in spiritual terms, there's still wisdom to be gleaned. Uh, a lot of times we, we don't want to do it like the generation before us because we're, we're just confident that we could find a better way when some of the old ways are still the good ways. There's a lot of churches that won't even preach and teach out of the Old Testament because it says old in front of it. Man, I hope nobody does that to me. When I'm old, don't throw me away. Because I promise I still have some value. But the paths of righteousness. Now, the other thing I want you to see in this image, on the paths of righteousness, it may be hard to see... Up at the top of that hill, there's a shape that's different from all the other little dots on there. All the other little dots are sheep and goats. The bigger dot on top of that hill is the shepherd. The shepherd, when leading them in paths of righteousness, is out in front of them. And the shepherd leads with his, or modern day Middle East, most of the shepherds are girls. But they lead with their voice. Okay. Jesus knew exactly what he was saying and who he was talking to when he said, my sheep know my voice. And leads in paths of righteousness. Now, there's another path that shepherds have to go through as well. 
the valley of the shadow of death. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. This is a, a picture of, of a location that's actually called the valley of the shadow of death near Damascus. Doesn't that look like a fun place to herd sheep? And even though I walk through, that means I have to go down into the valley of the shadow of death. And this is a terminology that is used by shepherds for when you get caught in the wadi in bad weather or at night. And you think about it, there's not street lights out there. The, at the time David wrote this, they didn't have flashlights. So if you get down into the bottom of a wadi, and some of those are several hundred feet deep, how much light are you going to have in the bottom of a wadi? And this is where the shepherd changes his technique a little bit. In the middle of the darkness, he stands. He stands in the middle of the sheep and often begins to sing. He doesn't let the sheep see the danger. The bottom of the wadi is a dangerous place, especially if there's bad weather. The, the bottom of the wadi is a defenseless place. The valley of the shadow of death, you have no defense against it on your own as a sheep. And the shepherd stands up in the middle of the flock so they can hear his voice. They can gather to him to where the flock comes together in the worst place they can be. And the shepherd is there to protect them. The rod and the staff were never meant for the sheep. And that's one of the hardest things for us to accept. The rod and the staff bring comfort to the sheep because the sheep knows the rod and the staff aren't for me. And you get to see this show up because the next line is, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. I hope that you'll take that little blip that's on the internet about the shepherd taking a, a runaway sheep and breaking its leg. Take that and throw it out. That, that's internet nonsense where somebody tried to, to make it fit the ideas of the American church rather than in the Middle East, if you broke the leg of a sheep, he's not going to be able to walk and you're not going to be able to climb that hill. That's one of the dumbest things if you talk to Bedouin shepherds. You, you don't intentionally hurt the sheep because the sheep know your voice. And, and there's accounts of whole herds of sheep or flocks of sheep being lost because a, a shepherd inadvertently called something out that they thought was a command to come and, and a whole flock of sheep could be lost in a deep ravine. The shepherd's voice is how he leads. He doesn't lead them with, with hurt. 
And, and there's a world that needs to hear that. There's a world that believes the, that God hurt them somewhere along the way. That the church hurt them somewhere along the way. That's not who the shepherd is. That's not who the church is. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Israel will be surrounded by enemies as they travel the desert. We already saw that when they were going. They were pursued from behind by enemies that were cowards. And there's a reason God called for them to be wiped off the face of the earth. But anyway, we, we won't repeat that story. But they'll be surrounded as they conquer Canaan, the promised land. They'll be surrounded by enemies. Their entire existence, even the modern nation of Israel, is surrounded by enemies. And culturally, we're no different. We're the same. God calls us to feast on His Word and, and to gain nourishment and strength from His presence in the middle of a world who doesn't want us to be who God called us to be when He set us free. They don't want that freedom because they don't understand it. And because they don't understand it, they view us as an enemy. They view us as a problem. They view us as the ones who aren't thinking clearly. And still God prepares a table before us. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. David understood the history of his people, that they had been attacked and tormented by enemies following them. And I want you to understand the reason that, that we as Christians, I think, struggle sometimes to be exactly who God's calling us to be is because we are attacked and tormented by our past. The past that Jesus forgave us of we're the only ones who carry the weight and the memory of it. The Bible says that, that God casts the memory of our sin as far as the east is from the west, which I just pointed geographically wrong. The east is from the west. <clears throat> and that, that weight and that guilt, the, the author in Hebrews asks us to throw that aside so that we can run the race that God has set before us. But a lot of times we, we don't throw it very far and it's pursuing us because we're looking at it through the wrong lens. What if we look at our past through the lens of goodness and mercy? I, I was a sinner, but because of God's goodness and His mercy, I'm no longer that person. All the hard stuff I've been through that I didn't understand at the time, I can look back and realize that God's goodness and His mercy are following me. All of the struggle, all of the heartache, all of the hurt, in the middle of all of that, God's goodness and His mercy are doing exactly what He said in His Word that we looked at last week. They're going to a thousand generations. Did you ever think that the impact of your life is potentially going to reach a thousand generations? 
Because it could. The goodness and the mercy of God in my life may, may be going to a thousand generations beyond me before He comes back. I can't fathom that. But God's time scale is so different than ours. What about the stuff you're going through right now? What about the hard things? And, and let's be fair, our community's gone through some hard things. Did those hard things change who God is? Then God open our eyes to see that your goodness and your mercy are still following us. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. One of the things I think gets glossed over way too often in that 40 years is that God's presence was with them. God's presence was leading them for 40 years in the desert. The, the pillar of cloud would descend on the tabernacle and when it was time to move, it would ascend and it would go out before them, showing them the way to go. Even then, people who couldn't have the fullness of God in their life, God was still leading them. And God made a dwelling place for them that wherever his presence was, they built camp around it. God wants us to live with Him forever. So much so that He made a way to live in us here. That when Jesus di died on the cross, He tore the veil to represent that I'm going to make my dwelling with you. In you. Your body will become the temple of the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to live with you there, but I'm still preparing a place for you to live with me outside of time. A lot of times we try to put eternity as a time scale. Eternity is outside of time. We're not going to have to worry about day or night in heaven if you read the book of Revelation because it's outside of time. And God made a way for us to live with Him while we're stuck in the boundaries of time, but He's preparing a place for us outside of time so that we can dwell in the house of the Lord forever every time I say that phrase it it's like a, a charge of electricity for me because it's a promise that the struggles and the hurts of this life aren't all there all there are I didn't get to the last slide <laughs> that's okay I know it it was questions because if we don't ask questions, we don't give ourselves something to keep thinking about and to let God's Word keep washing us. As, as we're told in the new scripture that you're made clean by the washing of the Word. But do you trust that God is enough? That, that what He says in His Word is enough? And, and if you don't know His Word, then, then you need to get into His Word so you begin to see Him for who He is and you begin to understand that all of His promises are yes and amen, which, which means yes and so be it forever. His promise that says, I will never leave you or forsake you. His promise that says, I will uplift you with my mighty strong hand. 
His promise that says, I'll walk with you through the valley of the shadow of death. His promise that says, when you walk through the floods, the waters won't sweep you away. Another reference to the wadi. But when you pass through the fire, you won't be burned. The one I'm not going to preach on too much, that you can handle venomous snakes. That you can drink poison, deadly poison. It won't get you. I, I, I don't spend too much time on that because I don't want this generation messing around with it. They're dumb enough to eat Tide Pods. Bless their hearts. But God's promises are enough. For God says, I'm the God who heals you. It's enough. But are we looking for Him? Are we looking for Him and looking for the still waters that He provides? The refreshing that comes after the heartache? Are we, are we listening to His voice so that we don't end up in the valley of the shadow of death when we're not meant to be there. My sheep know my voice. When we're in the valley of the shadow of death, are we hearing the voice of the shepherd so that his rod and his staff can comfort us? Do we see his goodness and his mercy in our life? All the days of our life especially the bad days. And are we really dwelling with Him? Anybody live in a house with somebody you don't ever talk to? That would be awkward. be real awkward. <laughs> I'm not giving you that assignment. There's a cracked part of me that says, just go a whole day living in a house with people but don't talk to anyone because I, I can't do it I'd have to I'd five minutes and I'm done but are we making our dwelling with him because everything we do in this life is practice for eternity which is why so many people I think are going to be shocked when they stand before Jesus at the great white throne of judgment and they say all these things they did and he looks at him and he says, I'm sorry, but I don't know you. That's one of the most heartbreaking verses in all of scripture. Because the shepherd knows his sheep too. And if you don't know him and you don't know his voice, then you're going to be one of the goats that talks about in another parable separating the sheep and the goats. God, I don't want to be a goat. Amen. 